everybody. Welcome to Dazzle Doctor. We're glad you're here today with us. It is Misty Coper, and I am here with Dr. Elena. Hi, Dr. Elena. Hello. And it's good to have everybody back. We are starting to see some nicer weather in this part of the country anyway, this part of this country. Um, not sure what everybody else out there is seeing. I heard California in the United States is having some rain today, which they don't like in California. So boo for the West Coast of the United States. The East Coast is finally experiencing some lovely sunshine and warmer weather. So we're happy here. Uh, not sure what everybody else is having today, but I hope you're able to get out and get a little bit of sunshine and vitamin D as the seasons change here in the U U.S. and um, maybe some of our other friends in other countries too. I'm just bursting with happy springtime thoughts, so I'm trying to send some out to you guys. So let's see, what do we have to talk about today? Dr. Elena, what's new in your world? Oh, Nothing too exciting, but my youngest son had his birthday over the weekend. Ooh, how old? He is seven. Ooh, that's a big one. Yes. So yes. he was very excited. We were able to visit with some friends and let the kiddos play together. And it was nice. So he was very happy. Did he get any incredible presents or... He, he, he did. He actually was, um, right now he's very big on the superhero weapons category. Okay. So he likes to have like Thor's hammer and Wolverine's claws and the infinity gauntlet were the, the big ones that he was seeking. So. The Wolverine's claws. I yes. feel like I could do a lot with Wolverine's claws. Yeah. Not sure what yet, but maybe take over the world. Yeah. Well, it was funny. So we were looking them up before his birthday because I made him try to like contemplate what he wanted. So I could let people who wished to get him something and give them an option, give them an okay. idea. Okay. And so we were looking on um, Amazon, of course. Well, of course. <laughs> and uh, where else does had, one look for Thor's hammer? I, yeah. And um, when we were looked up, Wolverine's claws they had he obviously got the kids plastic ones okay they apparently have what appears to be like brass knuckle type steel Wolverine's claws that wow fit under the knuckles so you kind of like grip it like a brass knuckle and then it has the claws <laughs> that's terrifying they looked deadly and they were scary and my son was like oh no, I'm not going to get the steel ones. I, can't. I thought you were going to say, he's like, I'm going to get those are the ones. No, 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 no. He was like, Oh, somebody go get hurt with those. And I was like, oh, thank, thank you. <laughs> thank goodness. He's not one of those seven year olds. Who's like, that's my jam right oh. there. But yeah. So apparently no, they're, like, they're ah, scary, scary. <laughs> multiple options out there for. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So I actually could take over the world. With you could take over. Oh, uh-huh. Uh, I'm I'm going to stop the conversation here at this point because uh, I don't want to incriminate my future self <laughs> in anything. I'm going to just quit talking about what I may or may not ever want to do with Wolverine's claws. So if anybody hears of news stories about some random lady trying to attack people with Wolverine's claws, That's right? We know where to look. <laughs> nope. No, no, you don't. I would never. It's terrifying and horrible. 
<laughs> and so not on my agenda, not something I would ever um, do, never. Right. No. And I don't even know if Amazon would sell such a thing to adults. <laughs> my latest thing that makes me want to attack people with Wolverine's claws is that my port that I just had installed that apparently is going to be the topic of conversation for the rest of my life isn't working properly, I guess. Oh, no. um, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. It's just, um, I, so I've learned to de-access it myself, which was a very big deal, I guess. Not, I guess it's not something that they always teach to everyone. But I will tell you, uh, if you have a port out there and you have any sort of desire for medical training or have any medical training and you've never de-accessed your port yourself, it's terribly easy. And if you're at all interested in learning how to do it, I recommend it because it's been very nice for me to be able to just be untethered from it whenever I'm ready to be done. So after I've done all of my infusions for the week, I it's been very liberating to be able to just remove the needle and be done with it myself. Um, it's, you know, I, I think the biggest concerns are maintaining, it's not a, to de-access it, it doesn't have to be done in a sterile field, but uh, you just have to maintain a nice clean area, you know, make sure that you're not getting any and getting an infection or things like that. So, so I've been taught to do that. And uh, I started having like kind of a weird anxious feeling over the weekend when I was infusing uh, and I just infuse normal saline. It's not anything. Um, it's not like chemotherapy or anything like that. So I could stop it if I wanted to, which I did just given the the feeling that I was having, I've historically been terrible about listening to the feelings that my body's giving me. And I've heard this from a lot of people in different uh, Ehlers-Danlos chat rooms and conversations that I've been in that a lot of people, um, a lot of my, uh, I don't know what I want to call them, colleagues, I don't know, like a lot of my, my people out there, my tribe out there, my dazzle, the dazzle, right. Ehlers-Danlos out there we're similar in that way where, where we know that our body has limits and we just tend to ignore them. Um, I'm sure there are, that that's, you know, uh, that that's, uh, that varies between people, but I know that there are a lot of us out there that do that. But so this time I decided I'm not going to ignore my body. I'm going to listen to it. And I stopped the IV at that time and I deaccessed it. And then on Monday, when my nurse came, she's also training me to access the port myself, which I have never done before. She, she's, she just started training me and I tried it myself the first time, missed it because it was my first time. And so then she tried to recover it for me. And for whatever reason, we just couldn't make it happen. And so now there's concern that maybe it's not in place anymore since everything else on me dislocates. It's possible that it could have come out of the location that it needs to be in. So now I have to go in and have it x-rayed to make sure it's still in the right location. So my new port, my brand new body part that's been installed <laughs> is, it, fe it feels like it's in place. I think it's right. I really do. I think it's just a precautionary yeah. thing more than anything. But in the meantime, my brand new shiny thing that I waited so long for is just sitting here kind of useless right now. So that's a bummer. Um, 
and I've been, you know, so excited about it. And it was, it was actually, I feel that the hydration was really starting to uh, be a game changer or is, I should say, starting to be a game changer because uh, if they're able to show that it's in place and that there's nothing wrong with it, it's probably just positioning of the needle. So then we can get back to having the, the saline infusions like I was having them. And I'm hoping that by spring slash summer, I will be hydrated enough to start getting back outside the house and building up some stamina, maybe taking a few walks here and there, which sounds, <laughs> I just can't believe that I'm at a point now where taking a walk is difficult, but there we have it. Um, and I know a lot of people with Ehlers-Danlos are in that kind of situation and it's more of a stamina problem and more of a um, overheating problem than anything else. I just sweat out all of my fluid in instantaneously. It's just a, that's a big problem. So I'm hoping I want by spring slash summer this year to be able to get outside a little bit and not have it be such a big, big deal. Yeah. So I'm hoping to get that port taken care of soon, get the x-ray, but those are some of the things that I was not anticipating with port life uh, here in Portland. I don't actually <laughs> live in Portland. I'm kidding, but I'm going to call it Portland from now on. So there are just a lot of things I think when I got the port installed that I did not anticipate and they're kind of coming to light now. Um, so maybe as I talk about it, folks out there who are, are listening might gain some insight or be able to uh, learn, uh, maybe, maybe just hear something that they didn't know to expect with a port or didn't know can happen with a port. Um, I know for me personally, one of the things I didn't expect was the catheter. I can feel the catheter. It goes up into my neck and about maybe an inch above my collarbone. And that was something that I didn't anticipate. So there are just some things about it that, you know, I didn't, didn't know about. And maybe folks out there who are thinking about getting a port or have a port, if they're wondering if certain things are normal or, or normal for people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, maybe that'll give folks something to compare to. There you go. Yeah. So today, Dr. Elena, we have questions for you. Um, yes. We have had some great questions coming in to our email, which by the way, is dazzledoctor at gmail.com. Uh, we're loving your questions, loving your feedback, definitely listening to it, making adjustments. I know a lot of you are not yet familiar with our voices, so uh, we're doing our best to make sure that you know if you are listening to me, Misty, or to Dr. Elena, and I will continue to try to let you know when you're talking, when you're listening to Dr. Elena. Um, and today we have some questions about how to talk to your doctor. And we're gonna talk about this from a couple of different perspectives because we know we have people all over the world with different kinds of um, healthcare setups, different kinds of insurance setups, different kinds of access to doctors. So we're aware that we're talking to a very broad audience with very different um, access and, and ways of accessing. Uh, medical treatment. So we are based in the United States and we are actually based nearby a very big city. We're, we're close to Washington, DC. So access here, it seems like it could be 
excellent. And, and it is to a very great degree, uh, especially when you consider what a lot of people uh, have access to. So comparatively, it's pretty great access, honestly. Um, there are still a lot of challenges in this area. And so if we experience challenges in this area, we know that you all out there are experiencing challenges wherever you may be, um, whether it's a big city, a small city, a town, a you know, different type of healthcare access altogether, whatever it may be. And we're going to try to approach this from the vantage point of talking to your doctor. So if you're talking to your doctor, what kind of things can, can we do as the patient to make sure that we are getting the treatment that we need, or at least to facilitate that to, the, to our best advantage? Um, so Dr. Elena... Yes. If you are ready, I'm going to just ready. start with some questions and I'm sure they'll spark some things that you want to talk about as well. Yes. Okay. I'm ready. All right. Great. So I think one of the, one of the things that I always wonder on a first, you know, I, I kind of, this is going to sound silly maybe, but if you want to call it like a first date with a doctor, <laughs> right? So if you're, I, I know a lot of people go to the doctor when they're sick, but I kind of am thinking in terms of I've, you know, I've got, I know I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or I've just been told that I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, let's say, or that I might have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And so I'm going to a doctor that maybe, let's say I'm, I'm sort of testing the waters with this person and I want to know, are they knowledgeable? Are they someone that I can trust? I will tell you, I have had a, a, a doctor myself who was highly credentialed and ended up making some wildly inaccurate statements. And I'm sure we've all been there. So what are some of the things that you would recommend asking a doctor to find out if they're knowledgeable on a topic? Well, the first I want to say that doctors are available, are there to help you manage your care. You don't have to go to the doctor and try to sell yourself. So yeah, so you have to like prove yourself. You have yeah. to, to, it's, it's almost like you're, you're kind of presenting yourself in a way of here's my case, please help me. And you know, that mentality gets people in a lot of trouble because once they kind of put the power into the doctor's court, then the doctors can are just dictating versus collaborating. And I feel like that's a very important distinction in terms of the relationship between a doctor and their patient. You know, there are certain situations where it needs to be very collaborative versus the doctor just dictating care. Certain situations require also the, the doctor dictating how things go. So like when you go to an emergency room and you got something serious going on, the doctor is going to do to make the decisions based on their training, their expertise to get you out of an acute situation, which is why you're in the emergency room in the first place. They're going to make sure that they save your life, that they take care of you, that they calm down, whatever it was that brought you to the emergency room, because that's what qualifies an emergency until further testing and further management can be accomplished. So, you know, for instance, 
you break your arm, you get taken to, you know, you fall and somebody, you know, and then ambulance comes and takes you to the emergency room. While you're at the emergency room, the doctor is going to say, okay, we got to stabilize it. But they're not the ones that cast it. They're not the ones that manage your follow-up care. They're not the ones that do anything like that. They're just like, stabilize it, go see an orthopedist on Monday, you know, if it's on the weekend or whatever. So yeah, there are certain situations where where the doctors have to dictate the situation. The other side of the coin is that you are, as much as you feel like the doctors are interviewing you, you need to be interviewing the doctors. They, you are interviewing them to see if they are a fit for you, just like a job interview. It's, it's always on both edges of the coin. When you go in for a job interview, not only is the company that you're trying to interview for asking if you're a fit for them, but you also have to be on the other side of the table going, is this company a fit for me? If, cause if the job is not what you're looking for, then it's not going to work for you either. So you have to take that power back and take that ownership of this is my life. This is my body. This is my health. I need to make sure that I'm finding the right people for me. That being said, when you go in and, and you present what you have going on, you know, one, I recommend anytime you're going to go see a new doctor or a doctor that you don't see very frequently, take your list of questions. You know, so because we all know that doctors do not have a lot of time in front of you. You're looking at maybe five minutes with the standard that, you know, is out there in, in some specialties. There are some, you know, some specialties that will allow you to have a little bit more time. Usually you're paying a premium for that. But in the grand scheme of things, we're only getting maybe about five minutes. So you want to have your questions. You want to be able to streamline it. You don't want to get there and this is not to throw my fellow clinicians under the bus, but we know how to go through a session or a visit with patients and use the right kind of wording to get what we need to complete our documentation and move on. We can be as efficient as we need to be. So we can go in there and we'll start, you know, hey, how are you feeling? You'll say, I feel okay. They're like, great. Why are you here today? You know, and they're like, you're like, oh, and you in your head, knew why you were coming in there. But as soon as they ask that question, you go blank. You forget everything you wanted to talk about. You you maybe say the most important thing that's coming to your head, which is, you know, if you go uh, to your rheumatologist and you're like, oh, my, my knee's actually hurting. But you really wanted to talk about, okay, what systemic options do I have to manage everything that I'm feeling? What else is there, you know, trying to explore better options. But then right in that moment, it's like, yeah, my knee is hurting, which it probably is, no doubt. So then the doctor's going to focus just on that knee pain. They're not going to ask about everything else going on in your life to get that more holistic approach. So going in with your, with your list of questions to make sure that you know what you need to get taken care of when you, when you talk to your doctor. So back to the question of what do you, what should you ask your doctor to know whether or not they are the right things? Like, you know, are they familiar with your diagnosis? How familiar are they? How many patients have they treated with that diagnosis before? And now granted, they don't have to give you like their stats and stuff, but and even if it's a low number of patients that they've seen with it, 
what you're really looking for is somebody who's willing to be collaborative, somebody who's willing to hear you and not just go by the standard operating procedure. You want somebody who is willing to to hear what you say, take everything in and say, okay, let's figure out a plan and actually talk to you about it. And again, I know that the doctors don't have a lot of time. So that's where if you structure the session with your questions, it allows them to be still as efficient, but getting your answer, your, your answers to your questions taken care of. I think that answered the question. Okay. So for example, when I, I know when I first came to you, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome was not something that was on your radar. And we've talked about this in prior sessions. You were interested, you were Mm -hmm. curious about it. You went out and started learning about it. And so let's say that I had, let's say that we had had like a traditional doctor patient relationship and that I had come to you and said, Hey, um, you know, these are some of the issues that I'm having, even though you had not seen anyone with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome before, at least that you were aware of. And I had kind of put a name to it for you. And then you said, Hmm, interesting. I think maybe I have other people who might have some hypermobility. Well, you knew you had people with hypermobility, but maybe now a way to classify that or think about it differently. And then you started getting a lot more curious about it. I think for me, that curiosity, and again, we've talked about this before, but, and that uh, willingness to figure, figure it out or go do additional uh, research or, or find out what you didn't know, I right. guess. Uh, and then, you know, find out how it applies to me or figure out how it applies to me, that problem solving mm-hmm. piece, that curiosity piece. Those were the things that sort of drew me to you. And they are the things that draw me to other doctors as well. And I, you know, in terms of asking, you mentioned asking for stat. When my aorta ruptured, when I was in Italy, I had to come back one year later and get another aneurysm fixed here in the United States. And I, I went to try to find a good surgeon and I was pretty sure I had a good surgeon, but one of the questions that I asked was, have you ever repaired an aortic aneurysm in a person with Ehlers-Danlos before? And he said that he had, and I said, how many people have you had not survive the surgery? And he did not answer the question directly. What he said was, I, I think it would be a better idea to ask if I think you will survive the surgery. And I, the answer he said, because, and the reason I say that is not because I won't give you the answer. I'll give it to you if you want it. He said, but the, the deal is we talk about this a lot too, uh, especially you talk about it when you do your caveat, different people react so differently to, Mm. to things. He said for you, You've already survived one of these surgeries. It was an emergent surgery and this one's not. So you have a much better chance, I feel, of surviving a, the same surgery in a non-emergent setting than you would fight, you know, surviving the surgery in an emergent setting, which you've already done once. So mm-hmm. in other words, hey, you've already done this once and the risk isn't as great this time as it was the time before. So I think your chances are pretty good. I think it has less to do with me because you had a, I had an excellent surgeon in Italy. 
I have an excellent surgeon here in the United States. And I think he was saying, you know, as long as you, he knows he's a great surgeon. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't think he was being arrogant or, or anything. He knows he's a great surgeon. He knows that the first guy who fixed the first aneurysm is a great surgeon. So I think he's just saying, you know, the surgeons are, are equal in talent and, and right. you know, everything that they need to have. Now it's just down to how do you heal? How do you react? What's your, you know, what are, what's your uh, probability? Mm -hmm. So it was, that was an interesting answer to me. And, and I think that's kind of what drew me to him is that he was saying like, you know, there are a lot of variables that go into a relationship between a surgeon and a patient, and they're not all on the surgeon. Some mm -hmm. of them are on the patient. It was just a, another way, a more creative way of thinking about things or a, a different way. So sometimes a doctor's stats, you know, to your earlier point are not always the best marker, but it, it does boil down to that collaboration piece and how okay. willing are they to have that conversation? How willing are they to talk about those issues? Mm -hmm. So that that's really an interesting. Yeah. And I think that the other thing is, is that, you know, one big tell for, for doctors and when they're talking to you is that, that they, you know, that you, they may be the right fit is that they're talking specifically about you. They're talking about your case, your variables, your differences from any other person that they've seen versus somebody that's saying, well, all of my patients your age get this, or all of my patients with your condition get this. That's somebody that I would be leery of um, because, especially in Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and, and personally across the healthcare spectrum, every person's different. So you may have kind of a general plan based off of your history, treating different people of that same age, same demographic, whatever, same condition. However, it may not carry over all the time. So if somebody is not willing to alter the plan based off of very individualized variances that you have, that would be somebody I would be leery of. Okay. I have another question for you. So let's take this from a situation where I'm starting to work with a new doctor. Like maybe I'm a newly diagnosed person or I'm a person who's moved to a new area or, or just starting to get my team together, my team of doctors together. What if I'm a person who is already entrenched with the doctor and I'm not sure I'm getting the best out of that doctor, let's say, and maybe it's, you know, in some cases, it's not always a reality to be able to just go to a different doctor or, you know, maybe I live in an area where doctors are not as easy to come by, or maybe I already go a long way to go to this doctor and they're just kind of the, you know, the one I can get to, um, you know, something, a situation like that. So how can I maybe go about refreshing my relationship with that doctor? How can I... Um, I know personally, I've had to be very diplomatic uh, with some of the doctors that I've had that maybe I did not feel were the best doctor to be going to for Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, but I've lived in some very small areas where I just, you know, the doctors that were there were just what I had to use. So what kind of um, maybe tips do you have for talking to a doctor that is not as 
curious on the topic, not as inspired to go out and do research, not as familiar or, or just in a situation where it's maybe kind of stale in a rut, you don't feel like you're getting any new therapies or things like that. What would you say? I mean, the first thing is, is that have a conversation, you know, again, the doctors do not dictate how your health is managed. That's, that's up to you to be collaborative. It can't be a dictatorship and it can't be one-sided. You know, it has to be a working together, cohesive team effort, because basically the doctor is there to help you figure out how to manage your health on your own, whether that be prescribing the medications, whether that be, you know, recommending, okay, let's get some blood work and see what's going on internally, whether that be whatever, but they it, it just have a conversation. I mean, doctors are humans too. So they have to be open and willing to understand that they have limits. I know for me personally, I know that if I don't know, or if I don't feel like I'm the right person to help somebody manage it, I have no problem referring out. I have no problem saying, hey, I can't give you what you need in this moment. You know who you should see? This person. Or you know who you should see? All right. Or, and if you can't find that person, say, okay, let's do some research together and figure out how we can work through this. So that's how I've kind of become a go-to person for a lot of my patients is that I work with them to try to find the right person to help manage their elements of care on various levels. And I help them develop, you know, those questions that I talked about earlier that you can take with you to the doctor in a way that helps make it collaborative, help makes it more clear. So you actually know that you're getting out of it what you want. What you don't want is you don't want to be the expert in the room either. So you don't want to be there. And I have, I've seen this too, is that, you know, you'll go into a doctor's office and and say, Hey, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And they're like, tell me about it. Shows curiosity. But if you're actually the one teaching them and they don't go out and learn from their perspective, how to apply that. And they're just basing it off of your words. That's not a good idea either. So you want to make sure you're not the expert in the room when it comes to the condition that you're actually seeking treatment for. So again, having that conversation. So if you say, Hey, I feel like I'm telling you how to manage me when I'm seeking your assistance, because you're supposed to be the expert in how to handle this. You know, if that doctor doesn't go out and try to find ways of doing that, if they don't show initiative to seek better care for you or seek to help solve that problem from their medical expertise and training, then it would be a different conversation to say, look, I, I feel like medically my, my plan is not being managed. Yeah. I'm confident that we have a lot of listeners who have been the expert in the room on Ehlers-Danlos, uh, on Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. This has certainly happened to me, for sure. Uh, I've walked in and had people say, and and I I know many of our listeners are going to go, oh yeah, th- this is <laughs> a conversation that we have a lot in our support groups, our Facebook chats, uh, and our our various groups, where you walk in and say, hi, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or I've been diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or you know. I was sent referred here because of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Well, I'd like to think if you were referred there, this would not be a situation, but, and, and I've had people say, oh yeah, I'm familiar. I actually did have this. I was referred to someone 
specifically for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I was referred to a, a rheumatologist and they, I asked, uh, are you familiar with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? And the answer was, uh, yeah, we did, we, we did some uh, studying on it in grad school, but not much. I think we spent like one day on it. Yeah. And that's, not, that's that okay. That doesn't give I, you a lot of confidence. It didn't really give me a lot of confidence. <laughs> It, again, that's okay as long as you're willing to learn, you know, from, like you said, from your perspective as the doctor, because I, I'm not here to supplement what you did not learn in medical school. That's right. not my job. And it has definitely become my job over time. I feel like I am a, an honorary Ehlers-Danlos, you know, expert in so many ways. I've traveled the world teaching people about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, whether by, you know, blowing up an artery in their, <laughs> in their face or whatever, however it may be, but also by sitting in doctor's offices and saying, well, this is what happens. And sometimes this also happens. And here's something you might not be familiar with. This also happens. And I, for my part, I'm also pretty sure that there's a lot of um, vascular stuff that they don't anticipate crossing types in Ehlers-Danlos that I personally, this is just caveat, this is my own personal belief, but I think there's cardiology and vascular issues that may cross different types and lines. And, you know, there are just things that I go in there and say, I, I feel like, you know, there's this going on or that going on or whatever. And it does start to feel more like, I don't know. And, and then I don't know whether I'm just postulating based on my own situation or it, you know, it becomes a whole thing where you really do need them to be the expert and say, actually, no, that doesn't happen. And let me explain to you why that doesn't happen. Or, you know, and it's few and far between where I find those doctors. Mm -hmm. So I guess one thing that I would add from a patient perspective is the advocacy piece, mm -hmm. the self-advocacy piece, which is unfortunately fatiguing and requires a lot of administrative work on the part of the person who's already fatigued and worn out and, you know, um, but it's necessary. And I, if you can find a good close family member or friend who has a lot of empathy, I, I recommend taking them along with you anytime you can, because uh, I personally, I think I've given a shout out to my best friend, Erica. She's gone with me. My husband's gone with me to several different appointments and having them with me, whether it's just to get me to and from the appointment so I can focus on the conversation that needs to happen, or if it's being in the room and saying, oh, but what about this thing that happens to you when I'm with you? Um, or what about that thing? My mother-in-law has been there with me and she's chimed in on a few things now and then where I go, oh yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about, you know, this thing that, you know, like for example, you were giving the example of the rheumatology in the knee and all you might, all, all I as the patient might spit out is my knee hurts. And then, you know, if my, if my mother-in-law is there, she might be like, well, but didn't you also tell me that your hip was hurting like a week before that? Oh yeah, I did say that, didn't I? Mm -hmm. And that might be the thing that kind of breaks it all open. And that happens to me a lot. So whether you're self-advocating, for example, uh, you have a doctor that, you know, you've heard of a new therapy, you want to try this new therapy. The doctor hasn't heard of the therapy 
and they're squeamish about it or whatever, or they're just not, they haven't ever tried it before. They're just not, they're not on the same page with you. And so you need to advocate for yourself either through maybe gently moving them in that direction or gently asking, being diplomatic, tactful, and sort of uh, saying, well, is it something you'd be willing to try? Or whether it's by, you know, moving to a different expert that, you know, that kind of self-advocacy or whether it's by having a friend or family member, member go with you to help advocate on your behalf through just, you know, either emotional support, uh, the support of travel, the support of helping you get ready, the support of listening to your questions, that kind of thing. I would, I would definitely recommend recommend that kind of advocacy as well. And a lot of times there's a, yeah, yeah. A lot of times there's uh, also a cognitive fatigue piece when it comes to the appointments, because there's a lot of information that's exchanged. And I have people that ask me all the time, like, Hey, is it okay if I bring my husband, my friend, whatever to sit in, in our appointments? Because I do, I personally do a lot of education in my sessions, especially early on. So there's a lot of conversation and a lot of times what happens is that my patients will leave and they'll be like, I just forgot 90% of what you just told me. So, so that information exchange is also a, a piece of the, of the whole pie that, that needs to be considered as well, because a lot of times you're not getting all of the information or retaining it when you have a conversation. Okay. And then the other thing that I wanted to touch on was, you know, when you were saying how you wanted to try a new therapy, try a new technique. Mm-hmm. There's there's a, a give and take with that to a point. You want to make sure that when you present something to a doctor, say, hey, what do you think about this? If they come back with, no, I don't think that'll work. Ask why. Because again, sometimes you got to think outside the box and things can be applied in different ways that would be effective for what you're looking to get out of it. And if they can't say why other than, well, we just don't do it for that thing you know, say, is it a possibility? Because what you're looking for is you're looking for if the doctor is willing to actually research the therapy, research the the medication, research whatever it is, based on your presentation to see if it's actually applicable to what you're looking to get out of it. And if they're not willing to do that, that to me is a little bit of a red flag because how do you know you're getting the best care if they're not willing to consider these different options, um, you know, or if they're just not familiar with it, if they're not willing to refer you to somebody who might be more familiar with it to get better information, to get more understanding, that would also be a little bit of a red flag for me. Um, because again, you don't, you don't want to go in there and say, Hey, I want to do this medication. And they're like, sign off on it. They say, I don't know how this is going to work for you. No, Here you go. No, of Cause that's scary too. Sure. Because so you don't want to be dictating your care either, because, again, I know that you individually are the expert on you, but they have a deeper understanding of how it all works together and how to best manage it. So what you want is that you say, hey, I have this thing. I saw this commercial or I saw a research article or I saw somebody mention it on one of my support groups that they tried this. Would this work for me? Right. They say, let me see. Let me see what we got going on. Or they may not be, you know, they may be familiar with it. And they say, hey, I've tried that with this. It didn't really work very well. It wasn't as effective. I'd be concerned about blah, blah, blah. 
this is what I'm going with. Cool. But then, you know, if they, if they're just, if they just shut the gate and don't give you really a thorough explanation of why it wouldn't help you specifically, I would press for more answers and more information. And again, you know, don't be afraid of them just because they have the title doctor doesn't mean you can't challenge what they're saying in a nice way. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Um, And I would definitely, um, and I think we have talked about this before, maybe, I don't, I don't know if this is just something that is so ingrained in me now or something that I've learned recently, maybe even, um, or if it's something that you and I've actually spoken about on the podcast, but, um, I, I would definitely having not always been the most tactful or diplomatic person myself, I have learned that in my care team within my care team and my, my team of doctors, the diplomacy is always the first route that I go because, you know, I mean, you want the best relationship with your doctors. You want the most collaborative relationship with your doctors. And I, I mentioned this because I have, uh, I have people close to me who have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome who go in on a war path. I'm thinking of one particular individual that I know who has experienced a lot of trouble with with doctors. This person lives in a small town. It, it is in the United States, and uh, they've had a lot of trouble finding good doctors. They're also a very spirited person in general, we'll say, and um, have have the tendency to kind of uh, and and they're very very bright, by the way, as well. So uh, they they challenge a lot of what comes out. Of, and, and this person I've known since childhood, they've always challenged authority. So they're constantly challenging and challenging and challenging. And, you know, someone who went to med school for a very long time and paid a lot of money to go there is probably about as uh, happy about being challenged as my friend is about being challenged. And they, I have seen this person end up butting heads a lot with medical professionals. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with challenging an answer that you get from anyone. But when you are trying to do the best thing for yourself and for your health, and you paid for this person's advice, and you're, you ask them a question and they gave you their answer, to, to Elena's point, if it's an answer that was just short, sort of, uh, you know, cutting off the uh, answer, just a, just a one word answer and didn't give you more to go on than that, didn't have any reasoning behind it, then yes, I can see challenging in a gentle and uh, collaborative way. Um, but I do know that we have, have, a lot of us have gone through the disbelief, the questioning, and it can be for me and definitely for this person that I'm thinking of. So maybe for some of our other listeners, it can be a temptation to want to come out of the gate swinging. But if you remember that you're there for yourself first, before anybody else, Mm -hmm. you are there to care for yourself. This is medical care that you are requesting for yourself. And you put yourself back in that, those shoes. And you remember that I know I've learned a lot by putting myself back in check and thinking, wait a minute, I came to this person for their advice. I did ask a doctor not too long ago for a therapy that they'd never heard of, 
they they didn't want to do it. We spent a very long time discussing it. They they did give me some reasons why they didn't think that it would work. It was a good conversation. It was a long conversation. It went on over the course of many uh, visits. And eventually I did a lot of my own research and we came to the agreement that I could go get that therapy somewhere else. So I, I did, I went and got a second opinion. The second opinion was, yeah, let's go ahead and give it a try. I think this actually could work. I have heard of it from the, the second opinion doctor. I have heard of it. I am willing to try it. I think it might work for you. So from the second doctor's perspective, uh, they did not, they had patients who uh, had been tried on it and they thought it could be uh, an effective therapy. So they were willing to try it. But to Dr. Elena's point, the first doctor did have great reasons. Not all doctors that I've tried to ask about new therapies have had great reasons for saying no. Um, this one did. So, it, you know, again, just as all we patients are different, all of our doctors are also different. Some mm -hmm. of them may just, you know, be kind of locked into what they think is the thing. And some are more collaborative, more cutting edge, more willing to try new therapies. Some are, are thinking, you know, if it's not broke, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So um, in the same way that we're all individuals, doctors are also all individuals. And, you know, the way that you approach your conversations with your doctor as the way that you approach conversations with anyone is going to color how, how you all work together. And I, I, the other question that I wanted to talk to you about, and I have a way that I handle this, but I'm curious to know what you think. And I can weigh in at when you're, when you're done, Dr. Elena, but I'm curious to know how you would advise our listeners to get their doctors, whether we're talking about, you know, a big city where folks can, um, have a lot of technology and a lot of tools at their disposal, or whether we're talking about a smaller town, how can our listeners get their doctors to collaborate with each other? So if you've got, you know, we talked about all the different doctors you might have on your team. And I think we came up with a list of, you know, wow. we did talk about how you may not need all of these doctors, yeah. but these are some you might want to check out. I know personally, I've got a team that's just it's, it's a pretty large team and I struggle getting them all to communicate with each other and to get them all to have the same information and to hear what everyone else says. And I know in the United States, part of that is HIPAA and, and it's me saying that it's okay for them to have all this information and then making sure that they all get the information. It's just, it can be kind of a tangled mess. So I'm curious to know what you think. So I will say with, you know, with HIPAA, the, the big thing is, is making sure that you're not sharing protected health information between people that have nothing to do with your care. Um, so if it's somebody that is collaborating with your care, I mean, most offices have waivers that you just sign and say, yes, I'm okay with you sending records or whatever to these people. Now, the reality is, is that doctors don't do that. They don't collaborate. You know, you do have some systems that allow for record sharing, allow for immediate record availability between different specialities. And I mean, the Mayo Clinic does that. Kaiser does it to a point. Hopkins. Um, 
Hopkins does it, you know, so it's great if you have all of your doctors in one place. The reality is is that's not typically the case for most people. So when you have, and, and doctor's offices won't share records unless requested. So they're not going to sit there and just say, oh, you know, I know I need, as soon as Misty leaves, I need to fax this over to these 10 doctors. So then that way they have all of her records from me. You know, that doesn't happen. No. It's only when it's requested. Right. So, and, and the other side of the coin is that no one's actually going to, I won't say no one, typically the other who's receiving those records they're not going to read them regularly. They're not going to be as up on it as you would like them to be to really be truly collaborative. So with that being said, what I typically do for patients uh, that I know are actually, I just did this recently. One of my patients was going to get a consultation with a neurosurgeon in another state. Um, she was like, Hey, what do, what do I need to tell the doctor? And I was like, I'll, I'll write a letter. I'll write a letter from my perspective, what I feel is going on. That's a quick little one paragraph, three, four sentence kind of deal. Not like a long drawn out history, but like here, this is what I've been seeing over the last couple of weeks. This is what I'm concerned about. Can you give me any input? Do you have any thoughts on these two things for the patient? And it's written in a way that is a little bit more clinical. So it's getting straight to the point. Whereas sometimes patients have a hard time relaying that message verbally to get those answers. So I typically will write a quick little letter um, and have the patient take it with them. Sometimes I'll have, you know, I'll even just while I'm talking about it in during a session, I'll write down the talking points of what I need to know or what would be beneficial to know from that doctor. So again, the, the message is a little bit more clear when going to that doctor to get those answers. And, you know, doctors that are actually willing to take the time to make a phone call, write an email, figure out a way to communicate, to help problem solve and be collaborative is, is really what you, what you need. And again, the reality is, is that does that really happen? Because you have to think about, you know, if every doctor who sees 60 patients in a day sits down and writes a five minute email, that's still a couple hours worth of work. So, you know, I just, I, I think it's understanding how to get that collaborative piece on your, you taking ownership and you taking um, the initiative to make that happen. Cause when you say, Hey, I need you to talk to this doctor for like with me, like I, you two need to talk like, you know, the doctors are typically open to kind of having a conversation or sharing an email or, you know, that kind of thing. It's just, somebody has to take the time to actually make that happen. Yeah. It's interesting. So I'm still kind of chewing on what you're saying and something that you hit on about taking the kind of taking that ownership as the patient made, made some sense to me. Something that I do whenever I'm going to a doctor, especially for the first time, or even for the 20th time, whenever I go into a doctor's office, I, I try to remember to pick up a business card or take a screenshot of one with my phone. And I 
put them in my in my phone, in my contacts with all the information I think I might need from them. So their fax number, their phone number, their address, their you know name, and then I save them all to a group of doctors in my phone. That way, anytime I need to think, okay, which doctors need to have this? I've got a mm-hmm. list and it's a ready-made list in my phone. You know, I have, I have it right there on hand. So when I say, okay, all my doctors need a fax of my most recent blood work or whatever, I have all the fax numbers right there on hand and I can shoot them out right there. Or uh, if I can get an email from a doctor, I will do that too. Uh, for like their main office or something like that. A lot of doctors won't give out their personal emails. Although you can always ask, there's probably like, if there, if we have any doctors listening right now, they probably just threw something at the, (laughs) at their computer or wherever they listen to podcasts. But um, you can always ask. I have had great luck with doctors wanting to actually give me their email address. I don't know if that's, uh, I, I would not, I hope I don't ever abuse the privilege of having a doctor's email address. And I don't ever recommend that you do that either. Um, But it is always a possibility. You can just ask the doctor, how would you prefer to get information from me if I have something to share? And how would you like to get anything that is um, urgent? You know, for example, if I had, like when I had the aneurysm rupture in Italy, if I had needed to get that information to, you know, a surgeon here or somebody like that here, how would they want to receive that kind of information? So mm-hmm. for me, I had a doctor back here who wanted that information right away because she was helping to translate with the Italians. And so she needed that information fast. Fortunately, I had her information even way back in those days before we had smartphones. Yes, I'm old. <laughs> we, had, uh, we, we had it stored in my phone, which I had with me in Italy. It was a flip phone back in those days, but I still had a doctor list and I was able to get that information to her quickly, or at least the hospital was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would ask that question, you know, how do you want to get information from other doctors from me if it's an emergent emergency? And how would you want to get information if it's not an emergency? Mm-hmm. And and sort of organize your contacts accordingly. If you've got room for notes in your contacts, make a note to yourself in there somewhere. This is how they get emergency information. This is how they get non-emergency information, things like that. And then that will help you be that conduit without overtaxing your uh, ability to, you know, still get the rest and the the restorativeness that you need, but while also getting the information out there. Um, And the other thing that I was going to point out in terms of trying to get your healthcare to be collaborative and get your doctors to talk to each other. I mean, I don't know if this is actually available or what actually exists in this realm. And this is something that Missy and I have talked about before is that seeking out some sort of a case manager, um, having a case management person, whether, you know, I know some insurances have case managers available through their, their plans. Missy and I were talking about something a little bit more private where you can pay somebody specifically to help manage your care. And that person can then be the, the conduit to then pull in all of the information to a central location 
um, and be able to decipher it and be able to kind of decode it and help you organize it in a way that then can be communicated to various doctors to make sure that they're all on the same page. Um, we've talked about that as being a service that that's needed for, for a lot of it because it's, it's something that I feel becomes very overwhelming for a lot of people is trying to keep everybody in check, trying to track everybody down, trying to remember who's got what information because you don't always focus on the same thing. And I mean, there's been times where Misty and I will have a conversation and, you know, she's telling me about how she's feeling when I'm working with her. And then she'll like halfway through the session, she'll be like, Oh, and I forgot this one really major thing that was really important. (laughs) I'm like all the time. And, you know, uh, it happens with my, my nurse when she comes over and she always asks me that question that, everyone, everyone with chronic illness is so annoyed with what's your pain level today on the pain scale. And I know we've complained about this before on the podcast. We complain about it. I complain about it everywhere all the time. And I will continue to complain about it probably forever and ever. And maybe this will be my like art. I'm going to come up with like art. So you people may not know this about me, but I'm also a terrible artist in my spare time. And I think I'm going to, uh, that'll be like my art topic for the week will be the terrible, terrible pain scale. I found one out there that's hilarious. I know I shared it with you, Dr. Elaine, a long time ago. It's absolutely hilarious. It's a, the chronic, chronic pain scale or something like that. I'm going to have to find it for our listeners and link to it. It's just hilarious. But I think like one of them was like limbs were falling off. Yeah. It was like a bear attack. Like my eyeballs are bleeding. Yeah. Yeah, It was hilarious. But, and that's kind of the way that I feel the the pain scale is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever encountered. But nevertheless, she asks me this question and I'll throw a number out at her. And then later I'll be like, oh yeah. And I have a migraine right now she'll because she'll look at me and she'll say are you tired and I'll be like no I've got a headache and she'll be like oh you didn't say anything I'm like yeah I've had a migraine for three days I'm like oh yeah you know what I didn't include that in my pain scale really I was thinking more about my hip which has been killing me for you know two weeks we keep talking about it she's like oh yeah we keep talking about that hip I'm like yeah but I forgot my my headache in the pain scale I mean the headache's probably a four as well do I add that on to the five about my, I don't, how does that work? So am I at a nine now? I don't know what to say. It's just ridiculous. So I'm constantly like forgetting that one thing, you know, with one doctor who's working on one thing, I will forget, or one nurse, I will forget that another thing is problematic because I don't, I I guess I've been kind of trained by the doctors that I go to or by the system maybe Mm -hmm. to perceive one doctor as taking care of one thing. And it's almost like I've now bought into the, I am not a person. I am parceled out in chunks kind of belief. Right. And I know it's not the case. And I have to now get back, get myself back into this. I am a whole person idea. Um, something that I found, I, I actually think you and I should talk about this in a future podcast logging like a pain log or just a day log how did how did I feel today it doesn't have to be anything fancy but just I, I kind of think even going into a new doctor with a log of how your appetite's been maybe how your you know how have you been feeling in general how's your head been feeling you know I have something like this to track 
honestly, to check my, to track my cycle. And it has a real quick, like little hit list of things that you might be feeling. You can just kind of go in and check them off. And it does help me when I go in and talk to my doctor, because it'll remind me that I've been feeling a certain thing that maybe at the moment I, I've forgotten about. Yeah. And I think that, um, one of the things that I've been looking into and in, in researching is, is symptom trackers. They have apps. There's symptom tracker apps that are available. I haven't really dove into it in terms of like, is one better than the other? I know some of them are customizable where you can kind of pick and choose which things you want to track, but I've been looking into it myself because I want to give my patients, especially patients with chronic pain to a, a, an, an opportunity to track that because, you know, and, and this is just me personally, I hate journaling. I hate logging. I hate doing all that stuff. It I'll, I'll start off super strong and I'll be like, yes, the first three days I've got it in there. And then like something happens and then I forget all about it. So, you know, and if you put it on paper, you never know where that paper is. You, you got to go find it again. You got to, anyway, I have, I have a lot of excuses, but <laughs> But in the from Our the doctors can't see me, but I'm locking my lips and throwing away the key because I'm not going to respond to that. Continue, Doctor Elena. <laughs> At least I admit it. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. But as from a doctor perspective, it is helpful to see trends. Yes. Um, you know, especially my people with headaches or people with muscle pain or things like that, and you can see if you if you kind of separate it out in terms of headache pain muscle pain, joint pain. And if you see if there's trends and on graphing it over a course of time, you can kind of correlate it to, okay, what was happening? Because all of a sudden there was a peak on one day. Yep. Oh, that would that day the it was raining. Or that day I had to drive three hours and it hurt. You know, whatever the case, but you can kind of start to problem solve certain triggers for different symptoms then it can be managed. Yes. So I think that having a symptom tracker and, and a log is really, really great in terms of being able to problem solve and decipher through everything that's going on. It's just a matter of being consistent with it, or at least consistent enough to get, get enough data. Yep. That's, that was going to be when you said that you haven't always been great about it. I love to journal. I do like bullet journaling and I do art journaling and I do all the little journalings. But what I realized was uh, I thought that if you were going to journal or if you were going to keep a diary or whatever, if you, you know, didn't, if you missed some days or, or whatever, or some years even mm -hmm. that you just, you know, had fallen off the wagon and there was no getting back or whatever. What I've started to realize, and I realized this by looking at other people's journals, both their bullet journals and there are journals and, and historical journals, uh, scientific journals that people have kept. There are a lot of people, very famous journalers, very famous scientists who kept journals and then didn't keep them for very long periods of time. Very famous artists who kept journals and then didn't keep them for periods of time and then picked them back up. You just, you, if you lay something down and you pick it back up later, you lay it down, you pick it back up. Um, you can even notice trends in that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. you'll notice there might be a trend that where you don't journal for a period of time, maybe you're feeling pretty good. Right. And so you're not going to journal during that time, your symptoms, because your symptoms are just not bothering you that much. Right. And there might be something in that. 
I'm and too then, much of a perfectionist. I think that's why it frustrates me. I know you are. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Elena just said, I don't know if you could hear her very well, but she just said she's a perfectionist and that, that I, I had that same problem. And this is why I say I'm a terrible artist because I just let it go. I, I eventually was like, well, life's too short. You rupture an artery and all of a sudden a lot of perfectionism goes right out the window. And I just decided, you know what? It's, it's good enough. It's good enough. So I, I've really enjoyed say, you know, the last five minutes before I shut off the light at night, I just go in and say like, this is kind of the overarching physical feelings of my day. These are the emotional feelings of my day. Doesn't have to be long or drawn out or anything. But then when I go back and look at it, I can track, for example, you know, I had an emergency with one of my pets the other day and it wiped me out for a couple of days. And I can tell that that, that was the precipitating thing Mm -hmm. that caused me to be very wiped out because it was the middle of the night. I had to, you know, be on in an emergency fashion in the middle of the night, get out the carrier and, you know, basically run with my, my cat to the emergency room, had to go to several different emergency rooms. It was a whole fiasco. I think we talked a little bit about this, but that whole, you know, adrenaline and then, you know, having to do all the running around and all of that kind of thing. Fortunately, just if you're concerned, he's, he's okay right now. He's clinically stable at the moment. But all of that, uh, it definitely tripped me up for a couple of days. It, mm-hmm. it wiped me out for a while. And I think I may have also mentioned on the podcast that I had a problem with my port where I lost some blood a couple of days, weeks. What was it? Week and a half ago. Yeah. Something like that. And it, that wiped me out for several days. And you can see it when I look in my symptom tracker. So it does help when I go back and say, man, I didn't get a lot accomplished, say in February or something like that. I can look back and say, ah, I I did though, because I was rebuilding my blood supply and I had that situation with Wentworth and, Mm -hmm. you know, all these different things, or it has also helped me to go back. And I don't know if other people with chronic illness experience this, but I have a problem with not feeling like I've done enough productively. Um, I'm currently on disability and it's hard. It's been hard for me to feel productive on disability and feel like I'm doing something that's worthwhile. So uh, it's been helpful for me to keep a journal because it makes me realize exactly how much I do. For example, taking care of my health, get all the, all the phone calls I make, all the, you know, just everything that I do just to care for myself and other things that I do as well. Um, writing some of those big things down, like here are the two or three things that I did today that were big deals. And then I look back at them, you know, I know at the end of 2020, I thought this year has just, you know, we all were like, this year's been terrible, but looking back at my journal helped me say, you know what, my health wasn't on point this year, but I actually did get quite a lot accomplished when I go back and look at things that, that I did. I I did some things that I'm pretty proud of. So I think that has been helpful for me from a perspective of being able to say, doing, you know, like, for example, getting out to my art studio and just taking in some sun has helped me feel better. And I can see that I can prove that to myself through my journaling. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take me more than, you know, three to five minutes at the end of the night to just to do something like that. And it's made a big difference for me. 
And I, I've given myself permission to not be perfect about it. And that has also, that, that's, that has been the catalyst for me actually doing the journaling, Mm -hmm. giving myself that permission to not be perfect about it all the time has been the catalyst for me to actually do the journaling. I honestly haven't done it in several days at this point, but I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to go back and do it whenever. Yeah. And that's really important. I mean, I think people overstress about being perfect and, you know, I know, I know have my, my moments where I like to be very on point for things, especially when I'm trying to do a new habit. Sure. Um, but you know, you have to forgive yourself. You have to give yourself some leeway. Again, we're all human. We all are not perfect. So we have to kind of understand our strengths and weaknesses and, and be able to adapt based off of that. So I think it's, you know, it is important. Um, it does not have to be perfect, but you know, maybe that's something that we can look into and say, okay, we'll kind of research a couple of different symptom trackers and see if there's one that we recommend as a good compromise, um, for things that, that we can, you know, recommend to people, which segue to our little mini episodes that we were talking about with our recommendation options. Yeah. Um, and I was also going to say, if any of our listeners know of any symptom trackers or use any symptom trackers that you think are, you know, sort of prime or primo out there, uh, let us know dazzledoctor at gmail.com and we will test them out in our new corner that we're going to get started with our dazzling discoveries, doctor, dazzle doctors, dazzling discoveries. We're going to start, uh, testing out and, and, um, trying out different uh, books, mobility aids, apps, uh, different kinds of tools uh, that that are available out there uh, to make our lives easier, better, more efficient, um, to help take care of some of these issues that we all talk about, whether it's specific to Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, chronic illness in general. Um, there are so many tools out there developed to help us. And some of them are pricey. Um, Some of them are not as pricey, but still we don't, you know, we're aware of the times that we live in. We know money is stretched and uh, we know that you don't want to go out there and just spend your time or your money or any of your other valuable resources uh, where on on things that just aren't working um, and that just don't work as well as, as maybe they should or they could. So we're going to go out and start testing some of these things and letting you know what we think, how they work for us, both from the patient's perspective and from the doctor's perspective. Um, so we hope to get that started soon. We've got a couple of ideas in mind. I think we just added one with the mm-hmm. idea of a symptom tracker app, but if there's anything in particular that you are looking at out there and you're wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth the time investment? Is it worth the monetary investment? Is it worth it for me to try this thing out? And you're just not convinced yet. Tell us and we'll try it for you. And we will let you know in our dazzling discoveries soon to come. Yeah. And if you have anything that you're currently using that you feel would be very beneficial to the community that you want us to review as well, definitely let us know. Yes. If there are any holy grail items out there that you're like, I could not get through my day without my blah, blah, blah. Let me know. And also if any of you have 
reachers that you think are the best? Because that's what I'm looking for in my life. I'm a shorty and trying to get things out, like say out of a kitchen shelf, for example, um, very difficult. And there's, well, I'm just going to put it this way. There's no one that's that much taller than I am in this house to get those things down for me. <laughs> so we have stools. Yeah, we've got all that jazz. But um, if anyone has anything that's great for getting things down off of very high shelves, I'm, I'm, in, I'm into it. So tell me what your holy grail items are out there. What do you use that you say... I just, this has been life-changing for me. And I've got a few myself that I'm going to jot down quietly over here and parcel out to you in the coming weeks, like little popcorn trails out in the woods so that you have to follow them and listen to every episode that's coming up because I can't <laughs> just give them to you all at once in one big brain dump because then you'd stop listening to future episodes and we don't want that. No. We want you in the dazzle for life. Hey, okay, there. Dazzle yeah. for life. There you go. Yo. I like All it. All right. Okay, Dr. Elena, anything else you want to tell our listeners? Nope. I think I think that's it. Just, you know, just to kind of summarize, just realize that doctors are humans too. Um, we have, you know, we want to help make you feel better. We're here to be a tool and a resource for you. Um, and that's how they the doctors should also you know, approach the conversation as well. Do not forget to be a self-advocate for yourself. Make sure that you are getting the care that you feel like helps you. If it's not helping you, do not be afraid to have a conversation with your doctor about, I am not getting better. Any doctor worth their salt should be like, figure it out. Let's figure it out together. Let's do something to work on this together. If they say it's in your head, it's, I can't do anything for you. There's nothing else that can be done. We've exhausted all options. It's time to move to a different doctor in my opinion. Um, so, you know, just, just make sure I know a lot of people, especially in the EDS world have experienced a lot of um, medical treatment trauma when it comes to just not being heard, not being understood not being helped, not being believed, you know, um, definitely just say, you know what, that's just not the right doctor for me. Don't accept it as I'm a lost cause. Don't tell yourself that you're a lost cause. There's always no, do something. not because there's lots of us out there and we are not lost causes. Yeah. And if, if there are so many of us out there and some of us are able to get some help. You, you can too. And we're going to, you know, we're going to do everything we can to make sure you know how to get it. Yep. So those are my big takeaway points. Um, but don't be afraid to have those conversations with your doctor if you don't feel like you're getting the help that you need. And, and also be open to trying things as much as the doctors need to be open to trying things. So there's a lot of trial and error when it comes to, to at least, especially in the, in the physical therapy world, but in medicine in general, you know, that's why they call it practice. That's like a medical health joke is that they're like, they don't call it, you know, fat or I don't know, they don't call it something, in the, but they call it practice for a reason because it's, you're, you're practicing, you're, you're get constantly learning, you're constantly getting better. Um, so 
those are my big. They don't, they don't call it doing medicine. They call it practicing medicine. Yeah. Maybe it's something like that. Yeah. I think it's something like that. I, and I say that a lot. I I've definitely had some situations with doctors that did not come out in my favor. And I've had, you know, I think I've said on the podcast before where friends of mine are like, you should sue. That's just their, you know, they're, cause they're mad on my behalf. Mm-hmm. And my response to that is always listen with medicine you're practicing. I mean, obviously, you know, we've talked about this. I know we have, that there are situations where there's been grievous medical, you know, whatever, but for the most part, your doctors, they're, they became doctors because they wanted to help. And if assuming that a doctor is trying to help you to your earlier point, you know, they're trying, they're saying, we need to figure this out. This is something we need to think together on. That's, to me, that is a collaborative doctor. That's somebody that I want on my team, at least until, you know, until we're tapped out on that person. And, you know, that does happen. Even, even good and very smart doctors can either not have time for, cannot have time for me. It happens. Or can just maybe not come up with anything else. Can be smart without having a whole lot of new and wonderful ideas. So sometimes it's just time to move forward. Mm-hmm. Sometimes relationships just outgrow each other, Dr. Alina. It happens. Not our relationship. No, we're we're good. We're good. No, we're in it. (laughs) We're in it. We're in the thick of it. Well, our listeners are, our listenership is growing and we're so excited about that. We want to ask you to please remember to follow us at Dazzle Doctor on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. YouTube is also dazzle doctor okay mm-hmm. i know you've been working on our list dr elena our yes. our viewable list and we will include those links for you and i'm going to do my best to find that pain scale that is so hilarious and its creator uh if it's still around i haven't seen it in a couple of years but i'm going to try to find that link for you because we should all have that laugh and uh please remember to email us with either questions, topics that you want us to talk about, um, things that you want us to try out so you know whether or not they're worth your time to try out, or anything that you consider a holy grail item, anything that you say, I can't get along without this, let us know. And we want to get that information out to the rest of the chronically ill and EDS world so that everyone, don't keep it to yourself, share it so the rest of the world can know. And in the meantime, go forth and be dazzling. There you go. All right. See ya. Have a good one, everybody. We'll see you next time. 